Good morning, my friends. It's really good to see you here today. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would love it if you would turn to a very short passage that I'm going to read today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, there should be one in the little basket in the robe in front of you, and you will find our passage on page 1014. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Thanks, Cindy, and um, I do encourage you to open a copy of Scriptures there, as Cindy did, and, and if you don't have uh, your own copy, take one of those with you home. Uh, we would love for you to uh, have a copy of the Scriptures. Uh, we know it's readily available electronically, but sometimes it's good to have a print version, and please feel free to take one of those with you, because uh, it's important that we have a copy of the Word of, Word of God. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. In life, cravings are powerful. Last night at dessert table, I walked up there thinking, okay, you know, what will I have for dessert? You know, something like this. And I looked and I saw it. It was there. There was actually two of them. Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> I mean, Cindy made my favorite dessert, and this thing is amazing. If you didn't have a piece of it, um, you're lost. I mean, it was, it's just so good. It is, it is like hard to describe how good this is, and it's, it's like the perfect balance of cake and sugary goodness and stuff on top and cream is just so good. And there's other desserts there that are really, uh, you know, just amazing as well. You know, you can have cravings for food like that. Sometimes you just think, oh, man. And as soon as you get a taste of it and you think, oh, man, that was so good. That was just so good. You just have this. Or maybe, maybe you have a craving for something of, of from the homeland. Uh, maybe you grew up in an area where there's uh, a certain food that you have there or, is a t- or a traditional dish maybe you had at Christmas time or something like this. I know there's a family here that uh, around Christmas time, was it, was it Ludafisk or something like that y'all do? Is that, is that a family? No? I thought I heard something about that, you know. But anyway, you know, families have, I've never had a craving for that, but, you know, some people do. Um, on, on the lowest level, what cravings can do is cravings, they can, they can just be annoying at one level because they just hijack your thoughts all the time. Have you ever had that where it's like, okay, I'm not going to eat this, I'm not going to have that, or I'm not going to do that, whatever it is, but there's this craving that you have. And so on a low level, and uh, it's just more of annoying. It's like, okay, I don't want to think about this anymore. I, no, I don't want that uh, on a low level. But, you know, on, on a more serious way, cravings can lead to very destructive choices um, that bring pain and shame to you and to those who love you. 
And so we have this where it can be something almost innocuous, uh, uh, something that's really not that big of a deal. Or then you have some things where it can be a, a devastating craving that people struggle intensely with that can really lead to some really poor choices. Um, so why am I talking about cravings? Well, it's not an exaggeration to say that your greatest desires have the power to either save you or kill you. And that's some of the theme we're going to really kind of talk about today, okay, from this text. That the, your greatest desires have either the power to save you or to kill you. So why am I talking about cravings and all this? Well, it's because it really is the lone command in our text. Uh, we're, we're coming into uh, where this is the fourth command in the book of First Peter. The first one was be holy in verse 15 of chapter 1. And then he talks about conduct yourself in verse 17. And then in verse 22, he talks about how to love one another earnestly. That's what we talked about last week as the third command. And here we have this command where he gets to in this text where he says, long for this. He wants you to long. The, the word literally means to, to crave intensely for something here. And so this is the command, so we're going to kind of center our thinking on that. Um, there's only one command there. Some people may look at verse 1 and say, well, there's a command there about putting away. We're going to talk about, actually, that's a participle that tells us a little bit more of how to do the command. But the one command in the text here is to long for the pure sincere, uh, spiritual milk here. And so what this text is going to do is it's going to a- answer four questions for us today. And so that's how at least four questions, but well, we're going to frame our discussion for this purpose around four questions here. And that's going to be, what should we crave? How should we build an appetite for this craving? Why is this craving so important? And what is the controlling question for this craving? We're going to go through those individually here. Uh, but first, I'm going to pause for prayer, and then we'll dive into what should we crave. Let me, let me pray. Father, uh, Anytime we read your word, anytime we endeavor to talk about your word, we want to pause and we want to say and acknowledge our utter dependence on you, both as speaker and listener. God, we we want to to learn from this text here. We want to learn from you. We want your spirit to guide us and to challenge us and to encourage us and to convict us. God, we want to rejoice in you and your goodness, and we need your spirit to use your word to do that. And so as I have the wonderful privilege to stand in front of these people here and, 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 and teach this text, God, I pray that I would do so in a way that is faithful and accurate to the text here. And I pray that I would speak in a way that is helpful. But God, we know that only spiritual, you know, uh, good things are going to happen. It's going to be because of your spirit that's at work in our lives and us being receptive to that. So help us to put aside the distractions. Help us to put aside the things that, that compete for our attention right now. Help us to put those things aside just for a few minutes. And may we learn from your word because your words are so important to us. They are our life. And so, Lord, we just pray that we long for your word, God. And so thank you. Thank you that we have this opportunity to look at this text. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So first of all, the first question is, what should we pray? What, what should we crave here? What is this talking about here? And some of you, you're looking at your translation of the scriptures, and you're saying, well, it's pretty obvious, because it says, you know, crave, it says, the, uh, it includes after that, the, the uh, of the word, the sincere milk of the word, it says in the translation. Anyone have a translation here that says that, that has of the word in the end? Oh, no one hears. Okay. Uh, okay, yes. Okay, someone does. Okay. So I thought that, you know, so we would have some of that. That's actually not 
in the original Greek text, okay, so that's the reason why it's probably in italics in your translation, is because it's just signifying there that what the, they think that it's talking about, but is actually not in the Greek text. But I think they're absolutely right. This is what it's talking about here, is that there's really good reason to believe that what Peter is talking about here, when he's telling us to crave this pure spiritual milk, he's really referring to the word of God. Now, the reason for this is because we have the immediate context. It, it, the word is talked about three different times in, at the end of chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. We see him very clearly speaking about the word here, and so it's very natural for him to continue that thought in chapter 2, particularly when we understand, when we remember that the chapter divisions were not original. Those came later on. And so it is very apparent that what Peter's doing here is he's continuing his train of thought. He's continuing what he was teaching here about the word. He talked about the eternal word uh, and the imperishable, the living, the abiding word of God. He talked about in verse 23 of chapter 1. And then he defines it in verse 25. He says, this is the gospel that was preached to you. And so what Peter's doing is he's continuing that thought by saying, so put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. And then he says, like newborn infants, he gives the lone command here to crave this sincere or this uh, 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 spiritual, pure milk here. And he's referring to the word by the context. Also, because in verse 23, it talks about the living and the abiding word. This is the idea of life giving and sustaining, which can be wrapped up in those terms. And so it's very clear that he's using the metaphor of milk here to refer to this word that is life-giving and life-sustaining here. Furthermore, the words pure and spiritual here are also used in other parts of Scripture to refer to the word. So, for instance, in Psalm, we have this reference to in Psalm 12 that the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So we have other places in Scripture that refer to the word of God as pure words. Also, this idea of longing for is also in reference to the word. Again, we go back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, verse uh, uh, 20, it says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I mean, it seems so foreign to our ears to hear someone longing for rules. Um, most of us don't long for rules. Most of us push against rules. Now, some people find a lot of security in knowing what the rules are and in abiding by the rules. And, and other than those type of people, most people, they like to push against the rules a little bit, okay? Um, but here what the psalmist is saying, what David is saying here is he's saying, I, I, I long for what you've told me to do. I long for your instruction. I long for your word. Also in the same psalm, just a, several verses later, he says, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. And so we have some examples in other places of the scripture where some of these same terms are used for the word of God. Now by itself, that's not conclusive evidence. I, I fully acknowledge that, but it shows us a pattern. It shows us a pattern that we should say, okay, this is by looking at the context and by looking at what, how the other the places of scripture talk about the word, 
we can really see that this is probably what Peter is talking about here. And furthermore, what is the effect here that's talking about here? The effect is by milk that you may grow up into. And we're going to talk about this in, in just a few minutes here. But this is like the effect of maturity that milk has. You have a newborn baby who, who they want the milk and they want to be fed. Why? So they can grow. That's the whole metaphor here. And the word of God is talked about in that same way of having that same effect. Second Timothy chapter 3, it says, from a childhood, this is Paul talking to Timothy, he says, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, even the effect of what this metaphor is is in line with how the scriptures refer to the effect of the word. And so what Peter is telling us here is he is saying that we must crave God's word. That's what he's saying. And, and notice the intensity of it. He's saying crave it like a newborn. Crave it as if a newborn wants milk. Okay? Now when a newborn wants milk. They treat it every time as if it's a life or death situation. I mean, there's no newborn that says, if you have time, if it works in your schedule, mom, I would like some milk at this point. Okay, but at, you know, you, you finish laundry, for you finish your job, and then, no, no, no. I mean, it is now, it is immediate, I remember, you, you know how newborns are. You kind of get them on a schedule, and you're like, oh, man, okay, we know the feedings and things like this. This is great. And so you get it grown. You think everything's good. And just as soon as you kind of settle into that, the schedule changes. And I remember there was a time where Mia, when she was a baby, she was going through, she must have been going through a growth spurt or something because it was like in the middle of the night. Remember this, sweetie? Remember this? Okay. I'm talking to my wife, not you, Mia. You don't remember this. But it was... Uh, um, it was like in the middle of the night. It was like, what is it? I mean, she was just wailing and crying and things like this. And it, it was like, it's not time for her feeding. What's going on here? And so we're checking the diaper and we're doing all this stuff. And her, She's fine, but she's crying and crying and crying. And I'm bouncing her around and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, what is going on with this child? And it's like, you know, and it's at that moment, you just wish that there was a button. There was a button you could press on the baby. And it was like, boom, and a little printout would come out. Here's what I want. Okay. You know, oh, this is what you want. You know, you want, you know, you want, you know, a blanket from Nebraska. I'm driving to Nebraska because, you know, whatever the case is, you wish that you could have that, but you didn't have. And then I remember Anouk, you know, so like, well, let's try another feeding here. And she just sucked this thing down. <laughs> you know, like, well, I guess that's what she wanted, you know. She was in uncertain terms letting us know she wanted something. And it was like a life or death situation to her. Okay, that's how newborns, they, they deal with stuff. You, you've experienced this. Most of you have experienced this, right? And so you know that. But think about the metaphor here. What Peter's saying, he's saying in the same way that babies disrupt the schedule, in the same way that they demand that this need is met, in the same way that they long for this and so much that it's a, it's a craving to them that in a lot of ways it is life or death because they can't do it themselves, I remember having that feeling come over me as a first-time dad. And then even when I was uh, a second-time dad with Isaiah, just holding them as newborns and just thinking, if, if I don't take care of this child, they die. 
It was just an overwhelming sense of responsibility. That, that I need to care for this child because they're so dependent upon what I provide. This is what Peter's getting at. There's the metaphor here. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Do we long for the word like this? Do we long for God's teaching? Do we long for what God has for us in the scriptures the way that a newborn does? Now, if you're hearing me say it right now, read your Bible more, okay? You're only hearing part of what you should be applying this, okay? Should you read your Bible more? Sure, okay? Should I read my Bible more? Sure. Yes, we should do that. But it's more than just reading the Bible. We have to desire not just re-intake of the Scripture. We have to desire what gives us life. We have to recognize how God has designed us spiritually. We have to know how God has designed us physically, but also how God has designed us spiritually of what it is that he's given to us that will give us life. And it's the Word. It's knowledge of God. It's understanding who God is. It's understanding Jesus Christ. We have to literally crave God himself here. And I think that that's the underlying message what Peter's getting at here is because the word reveals God to us and so that's really what we're we're to crave. We're to crave to know God and to know who he is and to know what his expectations are and to know his nature and to know his goodness and his love and his mercy and his wrath and his anger and his holiness and his justice. We have to long to know God because that's what gives us life. That's how we're going to fulfill our purpose in life, is if we know God. We have to long to know Christ. This is, what, this is what Paul talked about here in the book of Philippians. Here's a longer text here that I put on the screen here. In Philippians chapter 3, he says this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul, he's saying, everything else is lost. I just need to know Christ. I need to know who he is. I need to know him because he's my savior. Because without him, without his righteousness, I have no hope of forgiveness. He says, but because of Christ, I can believe, I can have forgiveness of, uh, of sins. May that I may know him. Oh, I pray that I have that same passion. I pray that for our church. Can you imagine how our church would be if our overarching desire and passion was to know God and to know Jesus? And the way we do that is primarily through the book. So this is what Peter is saying. He says, I want you to crave this. I want you to long for it. Now, I enjoy sports. Um, you know, this year's basketball tournament's a little different because Michigan didn't make it. And, you know, so, you know, when your favorite team is out of it, you don't follow as closely. And, you know, um, but, uh, but at the same time, I, I enjoy following sports and, this, you know, the things about your favorite sports teams and things like that. But what eternal profit is it truly if your favorite team wins? I've thought about that. 
as much as I love it if Michigan wins or something like that, and I rejoice with my Badger friends, fans, who when Wisconsin wins, I, I rejoice unless they beat Michigan. But other than that, I rejoice when Badgers win. Um, you know, but again, what, what eternal profit is it? And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with following sports. Why do we long so much for the sporting news and things? Or speaking of news, some people just love news and, and maybe it's on you know, all the time at your house and there's nothing wrong with watching or listening to the news and being informed. But can I just encourage us to long for something that will nourish your soul more than the headlines that are just gonna fade in just a few hours. Long for something that's gonna nourish your soul. Some crave the next episode of the favorite show on your streaming service or whatnot. There's nothing wrong with a good story to follow online, right? There's nothing wrong with a good TV show to watch. And it's, it's, it's actually enjoyable and, and sometimes it's good to do as a family. I get all that. But do we find ourselves thinking more about our relationship with the Holy God than we do about the relationship or plot hole in our favorite TV show? Do we long for God as much as long for other things. And here's the point thing before I move on to the second question. Is there anything truly more interesting than God? You know, sometimes people talk about how theology is boring or, or you know, the Bible can be boring or God can be boring. And on one level, I get it, but then there's a whole level I just don't get it. I mean, you, I mean, you want to think about true wisdom? That's God. You, you want to know wise living and how to be wise in this world? That's God. You, you, you want to see power and authority that is perfectly administered? Because we see power and authority that is imperfectly administered all the time. But you want to see power and authority that is perfectly administered? That's God. You want to see and ponder what the meaning of life is? God tells us about that. Hey, we want to know what true love really is. God shows us what that is. Do you see that there really is no more interesting subject to think about, to talk about, and to, to study than God himself? May you long and may I long to know God. And how we know God primarily is in the book. And so may we be students of the book and long for this pure spiritual milk that God has for us here. So there's what we should crave. Question number two in this text is, so how do we build an appetite for this craving? How do we build an appetite? You know, some of the times it's like, you know, some people say that things are an acquired taste and you think, well, if I got to acquire the taste, then what good is it? Like someone told me, well, if you start drinking coffee long enough, you, you'll eventually like it. I'm like, well, if I have to work at it, I probably don't want it, you know? Um, but, but the point is, is that some things are an acquired taste. And what is healthy for us often is an acquired taste. You know, church in many ways is an acquired taste. It really is. Uh, the, you know, the, the way we get together and, the, and the, the, the rituals that we have and the things that we do, in many ways it's an acquired taste. And that's why it's important, parents, you, you bring your kids and you have them be part of this. And, and they're, they're part of this and, and it's part of who you are and you're part of your family dynamic because this is an acquired taste in many ways. Much of what is best for us and how most healthy for us is something that we acquire the taste for. So how do we build an appetite for this craving that Peter has told us about? Well, here, that goes back to verse 1. 
Okay, now that may be where we say, okay, well, isn't this the command? Well, no, this is actually a participle that tells us a little bit how to fulfill the main command in the text and the main verb in the text, which is to long for or to crave here. And so we intensify the craving for the word, for the pure spiritual milk by doing these things. So it's told by putting away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So he starts chapter two, he says, okay, By putting these things away, that's really how we could translate it. By putting these things away, long for the spiritual, the pure spiritual milk, which is he's referring to the word there. We intensify that craving by putting all of those things aside. Now, there's, there's uh, uh, the way that this is written. It says that we've got to take the initiative of doing this, and then we're also going to receive the benefits from doing it. That's the way that he, Peter writes this. He says, you've got to take the initiative of doing it, and you're also going to receive the benefit of when you do this what I'm telling you to do. So he, this has, it's not a command the way it's written, but it has an imperatival force, which is called, where it takes the, the, the imperative uh, weight and then pushes it to these things and says, this is how you're supposed to do this and this is what you should be doing here. And so you got to put this away. So malice, this, this anger, uh, this deceit, uh, malice, there's anger with that. Deceit, there's not being truthful with that. Hypocrisy, there's that double life or you're know, saying one thing but doing another thing intentionally. This idea of, of envy, this idea of slander. All of these things, he says, you got to kill these things. You got to, this cannot be true of you. Now, why did Peter choose these? This is how you should read your Bibles, by the way. When, you, when you're reading through it, you think, okay, there's a lot of sins that Peter could have chosen. Why did he choose these? All right, you ever thought about that? Why did he choose these? Why did he choose other ones here? Well, I think it's important because remember the context of where we're at so far in the book. This book, he's writing to these Christians who are exiled, and he's telling them who are going through persecution. He tells them that they should have hope and they should be holy. Those were our first two commands. He says, you need to have hope. Be hopeful in your exile. Be hopeful in your tribulations. And he says, you need to be holy. You've got to live holy lives. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And what he does is he says, as we talked about last week, that this hope and holiness is expressed in love for one another. Okay, that's what we talked about last week. And that is only possible because of the new birth, because of being in Christ. He says, so you need to express the hope that you have in the holy life that you have by this transformed life because you're in Christ in a new birth and because this is expressed in love for one another. That's where we're at in this. Then he says, so then put away these things. Now, the reason why he lists these sins the way he does is because what he's doing here is he's listing sins that primarily kill community and kill fellowship. Think about that. Look at that list again. I mean, these are the things that absolutely kill relationships. If you're just angry all the time, if you have a temper, are people wanting to get close to you? No. If if you just have this hatred and and this cynicism, do people trust you? Not really. If you have a deceitfulness where you're fudging on the truth all the time, is that going to build a relationship? No. No. 
If there's hip, uh, hypocritical living where you say one thing but intentionally live another way, is that going to engender trust in relationships? Absolutely not. If you're someone who is envious of everyone else and what they're going through, is that going to be something that builds up that relationship in your home? Absolutely not. If you're saying false things about other people and slandering them, what does that do to your relationship? Do you see here that what Peter's saying, he's just told them, you express your holiness. You express your hope in this sin-cursed world during the tribulation which you're going through. You express that by loving each other. So here's what you got to do. You cannot have these things alone your life. Do you see the connection? This is what he's doing here. He's explaining how we live this. So it makes sense that Peter focuses on sins that are destroying brotherly love. Now, it's tempting to look at a list like this and think, yeah, okay. I get that. I don't really struggle with those. Okay. Moving on. All right. Let's just pause for a second, okay? This is my job, okay? This is my job. Let's just pause here for a second. How willing are you to work in conflict with other people? If there's conflict that comes up, are you one that says, hey, we got to talk about this? Or are you just kind of like ignore it and move on? You know, that's, that doesn't help a relationship, or maybe you just want to hang on to something. You don't want to talk through it. Could that be part of malice? I think so. How willing are we to work through conflict? How, how eager are we to ask or offer forgiveness when things happen? Do we tend to enjoy complaining about other people? And how often does that complaining about someone else possibly slip into slander? It may not be totally true, but we're so irritated with the person that we just, we, we, we impugn their motives. And we start talking negatively about them to someone else because we're just frustrated with them, we're frustrated with this. Maybe we slipped into slander far more often than we think we have. So do you see that it's easy for us to say, yeah, I'm not actively going out there and intentionally saying negative things or wrong things about someone. Well, let's just, let's just think about that for a second. And I haven't even gotten to talk about envy yet, okay? Envy, what about when someone else gets the better job than you? Gets the promotion at work that you were hoping for? What about when someone else's kids don't seem to have the difficulties that your kids have? How do you view that? What about when someone else's pain seems so trivial to what you're going through Yet they get the attention. How do you feel in that moment? What about when others get to retire more quickly or more comfortably than you do? How do you feel about that? What about when other people have more self-managed time than you do? We don't call it free time because everyone fills it up with something, but more self-managed time. They, they can choose to do it. You're like, man, I just, it must be so nice to have that. And there's an envious spirit there. What about when God seems to answer their prayers, but your prayer remains unanswered? Do you see how envy could really creep in in so many different ways here? So when Peter tells us this, he's not picking out sins that, oh yeah, maybe some people over there struggle with. He's hitting us. And I'm including myself in this. 
He's hitting us right where we need to be hit. And he says, that's going to kill the brotherly love that I've just told you to do. You need to long for the word because that is going to, this is going to be your help. And, and how do you long for this? How do you build this appetite? He says, these things that I'm just talking about, they kill that appetite. They kill it. They, we don't desire the word when we're too, too busy being angry at someone else. When, we're, we're, when we're, we're ticked off at someone, most of the times we're not thinking of, okay, what Bible verse do I need right now? When we're jealous about someone else, it's not that, you know, we're not thinking through a scripture or passage or something like we should be. And maybe God, he uses that to move us away from that, and that should be what's happening. But we got to be people that are reading the book. we got to be people that are living in the book and, and, are, and are saturating ourselves in the word. And we're, we're knowing God, and we're loving God. We're, we're filling our minds with God, and we're, we're pursuing God and knowing who he is. And some people say, well, I'm not that good of a reader or something like that. Listen, there are so many ways for you to know about God today that don't require reading. You can listen to the scriptures. You can listen to preaching. You can listen to so many things. You can have conversations with godly people. Let me tell you, there are so many ways. And let me tell you, even the worst readers in this room can read the scriptures. So the point is this. And let me, just, let me just address the kids here for a second. Please, uh, any kids, teenagers, and younger in here, can I plead with you as your pastor? Develop a habit of reading the Bible, okay? Develop that habit now. Just a little time every day. Please do that. It will serve you well for your life. When you get to college, you're going to be tempted to put the Bible aside. And not in a conscious way, but just because now you have responsibilities and you got things that you're doing and things all of a sudden, oh, you're doing laundry for the first time. And you're like, I didn't know how to do this stuff and everything. You're like, all of a sudden, you don't care about wearing wrinkled clothes because you don't know how to iron. And so you're worried about all those type of things. And it's easy for at that point and the deadlines of your project and stuff for the Bible just to sit on the shelf. Can I please plead with you when you're in college, make your Bible intake a priority. Be part of your local church, whether you're here or your other place where you go off to college. When you're in college, you high school students, please make Bible reading a, a part of your habit now. It will serve you well, I promise you. It will serve you well. And so we need to be people that are putting aside these sins because it's crucial that we do so. It is life for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, we see this. It says, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So I told you earlier that it is no exaggeration to say our greatest desires have the power to either save us or kill us. And here in Romans chapter 8, we see this. And so the sin that you refuse to kill and the sin that I refuse to kill will harm us far more than we want to admit. Can we please embrace that reality? So perhaps you need to write down right now a sin that popped into your head that I was talking through that you said, yeah, I need to work on that. Maybe you need to write that down and maybe you need to make that a matter of concerted effort of prayer this week and you talk to someone. Let me just encourage you, whatever you say, Ugh. you know, okay, yeah, I need to tighten that up. I need to work on that and everything. Don't, don't just hear a sermon and go, ah, I should probably do that and then move on with life. What Peter is telling, he says, put it away. So put it away. Get rid of it. 
so that we can express this brotherly love. We can build up as a body in the church. We can be holy and have hope in this world, much like what Peter is telling these exiles to do. So we said, what should we crave? We said, how do we foster this appetite? And then we needed to say, I, I, I think this, this, and I've alluded to it already here, but the third question is, why is this really so important here? Why is this so crucial? And I've already alluded to the importance of this already uh, by our, 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 our uh, congregation in our, our church context and, and brotherly love. Uh, but there's also, as you can see on the screen, the text provides a clear reason why this craving of the word, this this pure spiritual milk is so important to us is so that we may grow up to salvation here. And what, what this is talking about here is it's talking about this idea of, of uh, when, when Peter particularly is talking about salvation, he talks about it in an eschatological sense. Now, what I mean by that is he means it more in a future sense, okay? So the scriptures talk about salvation in different ways. So so, for example, in Romans chapter 5, and verse 1, it says, therefore, we have been justified, we have peace with God. Okay, so in some ways, it's legitimate to say, there's a scriptures talk about, when we believe in Christ, we are saved. Okay, so we are saved. Uh, we have been saved. But the scriptures also talk about, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, if you're taking notes, it was talk about how that we are being saved as well, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. And that's talking about how that in our sanctification process, God is changing us, and he's removing some sin in those rough areas, and he's shaping us to be more like Jesus Christ as we progress in our sanctification journey as we live our life here. So, the scriptures talk about salvation in the sense of that I am saved. The scriptures talk about salvation legitimately in the sense that I am being saved. But it also talks about in the sense of that I will be saved. Okay, so like in First Peter, and this is where he tends to talk about salvation. In chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about how that um, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in verse 9, he also talks about this as well, about obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So in other words, Peter tends to focus, at least in this section, of salvation in a future, an eschatological sense. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that, that he's not, he's not uh, um, uh, saying that we don't, are certain of our salvation, but he's saying that we can, we, we, we're going to have that realized. And so as we are putting aside these sins and as we are, as we are growing in Christ, he's saying that that is what should be happening as we're progressing towards our eternal reward. And this is how he's explaining this. Now we can, we can, we use the same terminology today. So for instance, um, you know, I told Allie and Rachel I was going to pick on them in, in the sermon. Um, and so the last time I picked on Allie in a sermon was quite a while ago. Uh, we, had, we were at a youth activity and we were playing games. I have to repeat the story just to embarrass her again. But we were, uh, we were playing games and, and she, was, she could have helped me out with this card game. She could have really helped me out. And I'm like, okay, you're going to help me out here. And like she was with ice cold stare. Boom just like annihilated me. Um, so not very loving, you know. I mean, probably some things she should have put off. Anger, no, just teasing, just teasing. So, so I told her that I would pick on her again. Okay, so, so we, have, we have Allie and, and we have Rachel. They're graduating this year, okay. And so there's going to be a time where they're going to be they're going to be done with class. They're going to be done with, their, they're going to take their final exams and they're going to be totally done. Okay, but they haven't they haven't walked yet. They haven't had a commencement yet. 
Okay, so there's going to be this time there. During that time, it will be legitimate to say, Allie and Rachel, they're graduates. They're graduates, okay? They've completed the work. They haven't gotten the diploma yet, but it, it would be legitimate if I said to them, they're graduates. No one would correct me and say, well, blah, 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 blah. not yet, not yet. They would say, yeah, they're graduates. It would also be legitimate for me to say, Allie and Rachel, they're graduating. They're graduating this year. So people would understand what I'm talking about there. That hasn't totally happened yet, but it's, it's, in effect, it has happened. But this is not totally there. And then I could say, you know, Allie and Rachel, they're going to graduate. They're going to graduate. And people say, yeah, I get what you're saying. So the reality it hasn't changed. It's just how we talk about it and the effect or the position of it is, is what we're emphasizing. That's what Peter's doing here. He's talking about this, this future reward that we're going to have when he says grow up into salvation here. And so what he's saying here is that this craving for the word is what fuels the spiritual growth while we're supposed to be on this earth. And so don't think, don't make the mistake that you can live this life and grow spiritually and not be someone who's longing to know about God. God. Some people think, okay, well, you know, I believe in God, and, and I've asked him to save me for my sins, and then I got that settled, and then they don't think about God anymore. The Bible's very clear that the life of a Christian is someone who longs to know God, and longs to know the Word, and craves the Word to know God. This is how you progress in your sanctification process as you wait for your eternal reward. Longing for the word is how you can expect to mature as a Christian. And so what we can piece from this text here that if you, are, uh, if you look at your spiritual life and you don't see growth, then uh, we can see that your cravings are probably related to that. What are you craving for? Some of us need just to spend earnest time asking God to change what we want and to change our desires. And that's a prayer request God's going to answer. Okay? Pray that God changes what we crave. So this leads us to the final question, though, that this text answers for us in the last few minutes that we have here is what is the controlling question for this craving? Now, what do I mean by controlling question? What I mean is what drives whether or not we have hoped of having this healthy craving for the word. And here's the answer. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What Peter ends here, he says, uh, this is the condition. If you have experienced the goodness of the Lord, you can grow in him. Some people will translate this since, which is a legitimate uh, translation of it. Uh, other people focus on the fact that more, this is not a, a, a statement of, of uh, where, where Peter's assuming this, where we say, since have you've done this, it's more of a, a question of whether or not you have, and both are legitimate translations of this. And so what he's saying here is he's saying either because you have, and he's talking to these, these elect exiles here, these people, these Christians who are, are uh, uh, exiles uh, for being persecuted for their faith, he's, he's saying that, that because you have tasted the Lord's good, you can grow up in him, and you can have this desire for the word. Or uh, some people say that this is saying that, well, if you haven't experienced this, then you're not going to. Both are legitimate. Um, the main point here is that in order for you to grow in Christ, you have to be in Christ. In order for you to know God, you have to be part of his family here. There has to be a time that the good news, the gospel, arrested you and that you tasted the goodness of God. 
So this is another way of saying, are you a true Christian here? And so in order for us to have uh, this, this, this desire for the word and this desire to know God, we have to be believers in Jesus Christ. And so how does the Bible teach that that happens? The Bible teaches that we forsake our sins. The Bible under- teaches that we have to understand the fact that we are sinners and that God is holy and that we deserve punishment. And because of that, Jesus Christ came to the earth. He lived a sinless life, a life that we can never live. And he died a death that he did not have to die. And because the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6 says, so Jesus experienced death when he didn't have to because he never Ever sinned. And so he experienced that. So then he took the penalty and then he said, if you believe in me, my righteousness, my goodness, my keeping of the law, so to speak, will get credited to your account if you believe in me. And so there's the call. The call is to believe in Christ. And so if you're here today and you have not believed in Christ and there, he has not uh, uh, saved you from your sins, today's the day, my friend. Today's the day. Okay. Don't leave this place without you asking Christ to save you from your sins and to forgive you. But understand what that means. Understand that that doesn't mean like, okay, I'll just believe this academically about God. No, it means that you follow him. I've explained this before that when we, when, when we say that we confess God, it has the idea that we say the same thing about God that he says who he is. And so we have to agree with him on who he is and who we are. And so the Bible's very clear. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's what he says here. Peter says, you will grow up into the eternal reward of your salvation. You will long for the word. You can put these sins aside only if you have tasted of the Lord's good. The gospel. So I just want you to think for a second. I want you to think. This is a good exercise, maybe in your small group discussion or something, but how have you tasted that the Lord is good? How have you done that? If you're not craving the word, if you're not craving God, maybe it's because you haven't ever truly tasted the goodness of God. Something to think about. But also, it may be that we're not killing the sin that is hindering us. And so I go back to this, is that your greatest desires have the power to either save you or kill you. And so, this is what Peter's telling us to do here. Long for the pure milk of the word. So we can put all these things aside so we can taste, we grow up into salvation having tasted that the Lord is good. Let me close by telling you this quick story here. Mary Jones was about eight years old when she became a Christian. She learned to read, and so she wanted a Bible for her very own that was in her native Welsh language. But the year was 1800. Bibles were expensive, and they were hard to come by in Wales. A relative of Mary owned a Bible who lived several miles away from her home, and so that was her only access. And so it was really impractical for her to always be walking several miles to read the Bible. So she saved her money for six years to buy a Bible. She finally had enough money to buy one of her own, and so when she looked around, probably with her parents' help, she sought a Bible. She was told that there was a guy by the name of Mr. Charles that was her best hope, but the only problem is, is that he lived uh, about 25 miles away. And so she walked the entire way, barefoot, to go get her copy, her own copy of the Bible in her own tongue. So she found Mr. Charles, purchased the Bible, and she had that scripture. 
Now, we can take a lot from that. We can take the, the tenacity of that and the desire for it. But her story doesn't end there. Because after she bought the Bible, um, there was a meeting with church leaders in London, and Mr. Charles was there, and he recounted her dedication for owning a Bible in her own language. He was there to urge a solution about there's a problem that there was a lack of affordable Bibles in Wales. There was a pastor there named Joseph Hughes, and he asked, he proposed, based on Charles's testimony, that a new society be formed and saying, if not just for Wales, but why not for you, the whole UK? And if not for the whole UK, why not for the world? And so eventually from that meeting, and with the help of William Wilberforce, some of you recognize that name, and other members of, of parliament, the formation of the British and Foreign Bible Society was, was achieved. And so today, it still works with international network of other Bible societies to produce and distribute millions of Bibles in hundreds of languages all around the world. And all this stems from one little girl's desire to have a Bible in her own language. I've said this before. We live in a time where access to the scriptures is of zero problem. We have more access to the scriptures in print form and digital form in many languages than any other time in history. Particularly if we're English speakers, the amount of resources that we have available to us is almost absurd. So we live in a time of no excuses when it comes to Bible knowledge and Bible intake. But perhaps that's part of the problem. Perhaps the word is so available that we've lost the value of it. If that is true, may we repent. And may we long for the pure, sincere, spiritual milk of the word.